The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. So sometimes the piece in my um, bio that's about my undergraduate degree in anthropology and religion is um, somewhat irrelevant, but actually today I'd like to talk to you about something that's kind of related to this, which is... um, the title is about navigating your life. And I had an a experience yesterday of uh, getting to go on a short sail on these Polynesian voyaging canoes, uh, which are uh, visiting the Bay Area now. And I found the story of this uh, Polynesian voyaging very inspiring for a number of decades, and uh, that it has some applications for us as Dhamma practitioners. So I want to tell you a little bit about this uh, and uh, give an opportunity to reflect for your own life, too. So the peoples of Polynesia are spread over a number of uh, islands uh, that's over thousands of miles. And there have been various theories over the decades about how these people got there to these remote islands. And at one point there was a theory that people uh, just like floated there on logs, kind of on rafts, right? Sort of with the way that the currents of the ocean went. So according to this theory, the way that the currents went, uh, these people must have come from South America. And at one point, uh, some anthropologist types uh, tried to recreate this by floating on logs themselves or rafts or something, you know, and you know, ended up in different islands. So they said, see, it's true and all that. But then another school of thought, uh, which included, in fact, the Polynesians themselves, said, uh, actually, um, our uh, culture and society is, uh, has this uh, very skilled navigational uh, understanding. So actually, we came from the other side, from uh, East Asia, and people navigated consciously and intentionally between islands. So at the time, uh, the you know, other side said, well, how could you do that? I mean, just with sailboats, and there's no GPS, and you know, <laughs> just thousands of years ago, and you didn't have any uh, navigational equipment to get, get you across those distances, so how is that possible? And then there came a movement of people who wanted to show that this was possible, and actually who wanted to revive this art, this ancient art of navigation. Now, this ancient art of navigation had actually been uh, dying out over the period of the colonization of the Polynesian islands. So the uh, colonizers uh, felt that it was better for people to uh, get rid of their language and speak English and get rid of their religion and worship uh, in the Christian way and also get rid of all the other uncivilized accoutrements. So unfortunately, this was causing the dying out of these ancient traditions. So it was difficult to find people who even knew this uh, way of navigating. But they managed to find some uh, master navigators. And one particular one is a guy named Mao Pierlug, who is from the Caroline Islands, and who was a master navigator. And master navigator is kind of like a Zen master in some ways, or like a Buddhist master teacher. So it's actually amazing the way that these master navigators uh, understand how to move uh, uh, on the ocean, and how to know where they are. So to tell you a little bit about his training, uh, he is sometimes called Papa Mao, sort of uh, affectionately. So he had grown up in uh, 
Satawal, which is one of the Carolina Islands. And he apprenticed with his grandfather from the time he was four or five um, as a navigator. And uh, apparently he didn't really want to do it when he was really little. He was kind of not that into it, but he was sort of drafted into you know, this. And then uh, his grandfather would take him to different tide pools and sort of hold him there and show him how the wind felt different and how the water felt different and uh, taught him different aspects of that. And he would hang around the master navigators uh, as a small child and learn the ways of the ocean. So he actually had the ability to understand, even when there was uh, no light at night and there were clouds, you know, where he was, what direction a boat was going, where land masses were, uh, and what was happening in the environment. So this kind of astounded, uh, you know, modern scientific technical navigators. Like, how's this guy doing this? Like, does he have hidden GPS or, you know, like, what's going on with this? You know? And actually, he developed and practiced a kind of mindfulness, right? a kind of awareness uh, that is related to understanding the clues in the natural world. So in some ways, what we're trying to do here in our practice of developing awareness is related, right? trying to understand, trying to become this kind of navigator uh, in your own life, in your own experience. Like, what's happening now? What's the appropriate thing? Which way am I heading? Right? Becoming aware of this. So here's some of the things that they use in order to navigate is uh, the, the seawater. So understanding the seawater, the salinity of the sea is different in different places. The color of the water is different. Feeling the winds, of course, the direction of the winds. Looking at the waves, and depending on where the wave is coming from and how big it is, apparently they can tell, well, there must have been an island, you know, out that distance, kind of shaped like this, sort of based on the way the wave is coming, right? Paying attention to the sky and the clouds, so what the clouds look like. <coughs> Paying attention to the animals, so the other living beings in the environment. So seabirds, definitely, also the fish, uh, the plants, what kind of plants they see floating in the ocean. The dolphins. And then, of course, the stars. So at night, even when you can't see so many of these signs, uh, the stars. So there's a very sophisticated understanding of the constellations and about how they move and how they move in relationship to the land masses in the Polynesian uh, archipelagos. So using all these signs they were able to navigate between different islands, like quite skillfully. Now the navigators uh, have a particular job on the ship. The ship also has other sailors and uh, people doing different things. And they actually rest in this state of um, kind of awareness for much of the time. So apparently the navigators will only sleep for in sort of little cat naps, sort of half an hour at a time. And basically will stay up for like 21, 22 hours a day. And even the times in which they're uh, sleeping, you know, Papa Mao said that um, you know, the heart is still awake. There's something that's still awake, still aware. Right? And uh, I got a chance to see these boats um, in, uh, yesterday, and uh, they have the sleeping quarters in these, um, the hulls of the boat. So it's a double-hull canoe. So these giant, uh, sort of what was wood uh, trees there. And it's hollowed out, and then inside is where the kind of very, very tight bunks are. So even when sleeping there, you know, wake up, he'd know what direction the canoe is going, right? And f- feel the waves and feel the water and all of that. 
So in this revival, he, he was found, and then he actually started to train some uh, other navigators in this lost art of navigation. And they made their first um, journey in uh, 1976, I believe it was, on this boat called the Hokolea. Uh, and they went from Hawaii to Tahiti. And he'd actually never been to Tahiti before, but he said that he held this vision in his mind of Tahiti. You know, he understood where the islands were, and then he headed towards that vision. And he understood the map of the stars and the islands and was able to go there in that way. And it was such a moving thing for the people of Polynesia that this art was being revived. You know, it really created this resurgence in culture and pride and language. Uh, so actually when the boat came into the harbor in Tahiti, apparently 17,000 people came uh, to see the boat. And the pictures of this are really incredibly moving. You know, that's actually half the island's population there, right? And people just walked into the ocean, you know, fully clothed to meet the boats. You know, just so moved by this, just went in. And apparently all these kids started climbing in the, the boats such that even they started to sink down. <laughs> you know, there was such an enthusiasm for this. But, you know, it's really brought about this great uh, resurgence. So among the people that he trained was a young navigator named Nainoa Thompson, who now is quite a celebrated figure in uh, Hawaii. And then he also has actually trained uh, next generation now from that. And they definitely have had their sort of ups and downs in this uh, trajectory. So um, shortly after that first voyage, uh, they thought they would try and go on their own and uh, without Papa Mao. Uh, and it actually was kind of disastrous. Like the, the boat capsized. Basically, they weren't ready to do it themselves yet. Um, and one of the the crew members, in fact, um, died uh, in the water at that time, who was a, a famous uh, Hawaiian waterman named Eddie Aiko. So then they trained some more. You know, and uh, Nainoa Thompson said that uh, his teacher, Papa Mao, said, everything is there in the ocean to learn, but it will take you 20 years to see it. So you know, everything is there. Everything that you need to know is already there. Right? It's just training yourself to be able to know that, to be able to see that. And then he also told him, you know, if you can re- learn to read the ocean, you will never be lost. Right? So someone else might be lost, but you will never be lost if you can learn to read the ocean. So this is not just a story about what I did this weekend, but... Uh, you know, I think this is very related to what we're doing as Dhamma practitioners and actually the teachings of the Buddha. You know, the, the, the guidance that we're getting is this navigational information. You know, we're getting the techniques and the practices of learning to navigate our life, the world, right? of being able to understand what are these different signs. And they're very subtle, too. So just like you know, seeing these different things in the water or you know, uh, plants or the clouds... So someone who isn't trained in that art will just be like, oh, a cloud, like a big cloud, a little cloud, right? Maybe we don't have so many distinctions. But if you're trained in that art, then you understand what that means about the weather, what that means about the direction it's coming from, you know, all these different kinds of things, right? In fact, actually, one of the journeys that they took, apparently, uh, another journey, Nainoa Thompson was the main navigator, but he had his teacher by his side. So he was not being the navigator, but he was just kind of watching over him this time. And he said he got everything right, but then he made this one mistake where there was a bird coming, and he mistakenly thought that the bird was going out to sea, but 
his teacher told him, no, the bird is going back towards land, so you should actually follow that bird. And he knew that because the bird was carrying a fish in his mouth, a small fish. And he said that means the bird has already caught the fish and he's going back to his nest to feed the young. Right? So this kind of like detail of subtlety that like you start to learn and then there's more to learn and there's more to learn. So what is it that we're paying attention to? You know, so when you tell these stories of the navigation, uh, and you see these boats, it's very inspiring. You have these beautiful big sails, and you know, they're um, out in the water. And here, what we're navigating is the oceans of the mind, really, the mind heart. Right? So there's less to see visually, so it's a little less glamorous, you know, <laughs> seemingly. Right? And yet, this is what we're all swimming around in all the time. Right? Everyone, all living beings, right? We're all in this ocean of samsara. So understanding what it is that we're actually doing here and how to read the signs. So among the helpful things that Buddha uh, taught around this is around the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. And so this gives a guide around basically a couple of different categories of things that kind of bring balance in our mind, uh, in our energies as we're trying to maintain a grounded awareness of what's going on. So the main one there is about mindfulness. That's kind of the lead in your navigational system, right? Presence, sati, awareness. So being able to know, just know without judgment, what it is that is there, what is present. So practice, when we're sitting here, you know, in our posture, is actually practice of being able to know that, like, well, what is here? What's going on? Right? And then in some ways, when you're out, you know, going around in your life, it's like hopefully then those navigational skills are going to serve you to know, like, okay, what's present? What's present in my mind and heart? What's the intention that's arising? What's the energy that's arising in my body? Right? What is it that's about to drive my speech, my actions? You know, is that something that I would want to follow? Is that the route I want to take? Right? Or is there a different route? Then we have the ones that are the energizing factors. So the energizing factors are of joy, uh, piti, rapture, of investigation, uh, inquiry, this curiosity of mind. And then then of energy, effort, or courage. So these are kind of energizing factors in our navigational set. And then we have the more stabilizing factors. So calm, tranquility concentration or focus, and equanimity, or having this balance, right, the balance of mind. So we kind of develop these different qualities and understand at different times, well, what is it that I need to bring more in? Do I need to bring more energy in? Do I need to bring more calm in? Right? Like, what is it that actually will help me to be able to maintain so I can navigate well? Also, this, this particularly the factor of mindfulness and all of these factors that support that help us to navigate what it is that's arising in our sort of internal landscape and what should I do with that? So, just like in the ocean, it's not like the navigator actually controls the waves, right? Like, it's not like the navigator actually makes the waves go one way or makes the wind go another way. You know, they don't have that power. They have the power to move the sails, right, according to what seems to be happening in the natural environment. But they don't control what's happening outside, right? They don't control the birds or the fish or uh, the clouds. But there's a way in which being present with that, being able to connect with that, helps to know what to do with the sail, 
which way to aim it, which way you want the boat to go. As well as having that vision, you know, that vision of what it is that you're aiming towards. So as you're navigating your own mind, heart, life, you know, seeing what it is that's coming up for you, and knowing, you know, is this something skillful, is this something unskillful? Is this something leading towards where I want to go? Is this something leading away from where I want to go? Am I training my heart and mind in the way that I want it to develop? Or am I actually cultivating and continuing to uh, bring the habits of unskillfulness to my life? Right? Things that will cause me unhappiness and others unhappiness. <coughs> So I want to give you an opportunity to reflect for yourself on this uh, navigational kind of thing that's going on here. And particularly actually for yourself to consider, well, what is it that is my vision? Sort of like, what is it that I'm aiming for, you know, in my practice or, or not? And I think it's a good question for everyone to hold at different points uh, along the way. And it's very possible that your answer has changed uh, over the years. It could be, in fact, that today is your first day ever showing up here, which is great. And you might think, like, well, I just want to check it out, you know, see what's going on here. And that's fine. Right? And all of us one day, at one point, were in that uh, camp. Right? But then, perhaps, as you continued along, there were different reasons why you were continuing. And those reasons often change, and actually that's fine. But what is my vision? Like, what is it that I am actually doing this practice for? What am I on the path for? What is it that I, my heart is yearning for? What is it that I want at this point? Yeah. So it's, it's helpful to reflect on that, I think, because otherwise we can kind of get sometimes into a drift, you know? So you get into a drift on the seas, you know, because you don't have this, a vision for what it is that you're trying to uh, move towards at all. Now, it seems ironic, like, oh, to be present, but then what are you trying to move towards, right? So this is holding a kind of paradox in mind. And also the way to move towards that is not actually by continuing to dwell on it but to hold it periodically, like as a vision in mind. So we may not, some people here may be uh, boats people and you know, able to navigate on the ocean, but most of us navigate on the roads. So you can think about it from uh, that standpoint. So say if you want to go from here to San Francisco, and uh, you want to go to um, uh, Civic Center. So you have to have that as an idea, like oh, I want to go to Civic Center. So that's your vision, right, of that. Uh, but then as you're actually driving there, you need to take the different turns along the way that will get you there. So, you know, as you're, the choice is to get onto 101 north or south, if you just think Civic Center, Civic Center, like, that's not going to be helpful. You have to figure out, oh, now it's 101 north, right? Okay, that's the turn to take now, right? And then as you're getting towards there, it's like, oh, okay, do I want to get off at uh, Cesar Chavez or do I want to get off at uh, 9th Street, right? So if you're just thinking about the image of City Hall, that's not going to help you. You need to figure out at that point, like, this way or that way, right? But you do have to hold and know, like, oh, this is where I'm heading. I'm heading towards uh, Civic Center. This is my ultimate uh, destination. Right? And if you lost that, you could just kind of drive around, right? Which might also be fine, but <laughs> you wouldn't really get to a Civic Center, right, for where you're meeting your friends or going to the museum or, you know, voting or whatever you do there. So for that reason, I think it is good to actually reflect and, and consider, like, well, what is it that I'm up to now in my practice, right? Another common kind of um, trajectory that happens, I think, is that people enter the practice from uh, either some sort of existential thing that's gripped them or uh, suffering, right? So suffering is the biggest uh, 
uh, impetus to practice. Like over thousands of years, this has continued. Right? And it's a really good reason to practice, right? to notice dukkha. You know? It's like the first noble truth right there. Right? But then sometimes what happens is that starts to clear up a little bit, either because the immediate circumstances of that breakup or death or loss of job or whatever you know, start to fade, or because you have started to develop the tools to be able to deal with that. Right? And then you're kind of adrift again. Like you don't have enough suffering to kind of propel you on, you know, <laughs> yet. <laughs> Life usually comes back around and gives you another kick in the pants eventually, right? But, you know, there's a period in which you're sort of adrift, right? Uh, and I think it actually is helpful to, you know, sometimes it's from the, like, I want to get out of this, but sometimes from a positive standpoint to reflect on, like, well, what is my practice about? You know, what is my, what is my impetus now? Uh, and if you don't know, also, that's okay. Then maybe you can hold that question. You know, that can be your question. Like, what is, what is that? And do some inquiry into that. So we're going to just sit for a few minutes, and I'll let you try and answer that question yourself in whatever way you want. And then I'll give you a chance to actually share that in whatever way you want with someone else, and then we'll talk together. Okay. So what's your vision? What is, where are you heading? What do you want to do in your practice? What is, what is it that you would like to see? What is your aspiration? Sometimes an image may come up of a teacher who you know or someone you know in your life who's wise or calm or skillful in a way or a friend. be wanting to be free from something, something very difficult for you to deal with. It could be just a sense of interest, understanding. So just sincerely asking yourself that question about your aspiration for your life, for your mind and heart. And there's no wrong answer to this. Just whatever answer is true for you right now.
Okay, so in the spirit of uh, building Sangha and community, um, I want to give you a chance to share that with someone else in your vicinity. Um, so why don't you turn to someone, maybe it could be someone you don't know, or if you want to do it with someone you know, you can. Of course, there's a personal thing, so you only have to share what you feel comfortable uh, sharing about. So introduce yourself, and then um, we'll give about uh, like four minutes a person to share, and then we'll come back together as a group and talk about it. So that's great to hear so much uh, energy and uh, excitement. I, I shouldn't have even talked at all the first time. I should have just let you talk to each other like that. Um, it's actually a little story about this myself. I recently was going through some um, uh, shoeboxes of letters and things. So, and uh, I had saved all these letters from long periods of time, including um, uh, basically during the time when people actually wrote letters, first of all, I should say, right? <laughs> handwritten on paper, right? Um, and they were from different periods in which I was away and uh, you know, after I finished um, college I had my own um, I was kind of on my own quest so you know, I studied anthropology and religion to try to understand something but then I realized I wasn't going to get it from studying it you know, I needed to get it here and so then I just kind of pushed off and uh, I found the Dharma practice and uh, just as soon as I, I found that just took to it and spent many years um, practicing in retreat centers and monasteries I went to Sri Lanka, I went to India. Um, so during, during this whole time, my uh, parents were not very happy about this trajectory, right? So I found many letters uh, from them uh, during this period. And the funny thing is that uh, now I'm much closer to their age at that time than I am to my age when I was off, you know, doing all this uh, practice. So I actually identified much more with the parent side of it, you know, <laughs> which, you know, at the time I didn't at all, of course, you know. Um, but I could, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the letters that I wrote, but I actually remember what I, some of what I wrote to them, and I remember that uh, drive and what was important to me. Uh, and it definitely has shifted for me over time, you know, in some ways for uh, the better, or you know, as things have moved along. But um, I was just reflecting on that uh, trajectory over decades now for my own practice and life. So anything that anyone would like to share from your own reflections about this, either how your motivation has changed or where it is now, uh, or any dilemmas you have? Yeah. Oh, we got a mic coming to you, I think. In speaking with my neighbor, Tom, here, uh, I reflected on my early experiences as a, as a, young, as a teenager sailing off the... Out the, what used to be the marina in Palo Alto no yeah. longer exists in tiny boats, eight, ten-foot boats. And we, we, against the directions of our caretakers, we would go out into the bay for right. adventure. But, and I still sail a bit, and you're, the metaphor is extremely apt because anybody here who sails and other people who sail, I'm sure, talked about it with their interlocutors. Uh, it's very true that one of the great pleasures of sailing is the way it takes you out of yourself Mm -hmm. uh, and the way in which you must be um, extremely mindful moment to moment, or else, as I pointed out to Tom, you end up in the bay, mm -hmm. um, which is a nice metaphor for Duca. At least the bay down here, <laughs> if you go in as a teenager, you smell for a couple days. It's sulfurous, <laughs> it's dark, it's, uh, the bottom is really mucky when you get down there and they're trying to turn your boat back over. You mean in the bay like you fall into the water, is what you're yeah, saying? Your yeah, your boat goes over because <laughs> you weren't mindful. And... Um, Right. You quickly <laughs> learn your lesson. Anyway, right. just a sailor. <laughs> right, that's why you take the bigger boats eventually. <laughs> or canoes. Thank you. 
Uh, I thought it was great that you mentioned that um, suffering brings you um, here. Once you feel your suffering ease, you have this dilemma like, whoa, well, nothing's jumping up at me. You know, what's going on? Which is kind of where I've been lately. And uh, it's been really interesting kind of, you know, staying with the practice um, despite the fact that, oh, I don't have a big issue right now. I, I do have a big issue in my life, but I'm not suffering from it, so yay. <laughs> um, but I was really glad that you brought that up because I think it's a very common experience, and a lot of people experience that as a roadblock to continuing um, their practice. Right. So thank you. Yeah, I feel like also in the as we go along, uh, basically we become more and more attuned to different, more subtle levels of suffering. You know, so maybe the thing that first like pushes you into doing practice or inquiry at all is some giant, huge dukkha that you like cannot avoid, escape, you know, anything. But then as you start to pay attention, there's more and more, you know, so much subtle levels of just how our mind-body system reacts to things that actually are very painful. You know, so kind of akin to like at first, you know, if you're walking along, there's like a giant pothole in the road, and then you know, like you know, oh, like you can't avoid noticing that. But then as you go along, you get more and more subtle. It's like, oh, there's like rocks in my shoe. There's sand in my shoe. You know, there's like more and more. It's like, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be better if that was not there? What if I emptied that out? You know, uh, and before when you were dealing with the potholes, like the rocks in your shoe were like nothing compared to the giant pothole, right? Like you didn't have the subtlety to pay attention to that. But then, you know, as we start to tune in more, it's like, oh, okay. So I think both that there are different levels of, of dukkha that are there if we become uh, more attuned to them. Uh, so that's one thing to, that we can kind of get interested in and pay attention to, right? Even just the movement of the mind of um, green and hatred, you know, at all. So if you've got any of that left, you know, <laughs> pay attention to that <laughs> because that's a good place to notice, right? That, that movement uh, out of balance in that way. Uh, that movement from, uh, you know, seeming to have not have a sense of self, you know, as you're describing of being in the ocean and just being totally attuned to that idea of self arising again and believing in that and acting from that, you know, solidifying into duality. So you could notice that. What, what is that moment like, you know, from everything being sort of fluid and being in the flow to like f- me and this thing that I need to get rid of or uh, get or seek or something like that. And then the other positive version is, you know, of aspiration. So even if the first thing that kind of kicks you into the path is about dukkha, is about suffering, uh, I think also there's a way in which we can see positive vision of what it is that we would like to uh, be able to be or how we'd like to relate. Or, uh, and that can be along the lines of developing more kindness, compassion, right? Or developing wisdom or clarity. Uh, and sometimes you can find that from people you know who have those qualities, you know, who are inspiring to you. And it doesn't even have to be like the Dalai Lama. You know, it can be like someone who you know, like in your office who seems, you know, kind, or it can be some neighbor or friend or someone who you just appreciate this particular quality about them. And they're like, oh, that would be great if I could actually cultivate that quality in myself, you know, both good for myself and good for others. So also sometimes we can take up a more positive kind of aspiration uh, in that way too, when the the dukkha is not there to kick us down the road. (laughs) Thank you. Anyone else? So I'll, I'll share with you also a little uh, 
more about the story from the navigators. There's actually many, many pieces. It's a great, uh, you know, both a great story and very inspiring. So, so they sailed. I told you about this boat, the Hokulea, and um, but that was made out of like mostly modern materials. And then at one point they decided, you know, we want to make a boat out of the original kind of wood. Like we want to make a, a double-hulled canoe out of giant trees, right? Just to complete this cycle of. Uh, bringing back this uh, art. But then the trouble was that they couldn't find trees on Hawaii, or in Polynesia, that were big enough to do this because basically 90% of the forests of these, these ancient koa trees had been uh, cut down. So it was impossible to find a tree that was large enough or healthy enough to use to make the canoe. So then they're kind of stuck, like, what are we going to do about this? And um, they actually put out a call to uh, other Native peoples, and uh, some people in southeast Alaska, the Native people in that area, actually did a search for apparently six weeks until they found these big uh, trees that could serve. So the reason they got this idea to ask them is because uh, even the ancient navigators had sometimes made the canoes out of logs that had floated down, come down from those areas, these giant logs would actually make the way, you know, would make their way and they'd be turned into boats. So then uh, a bunch of the Hawaiian and Polynesian navigators went to Alaska to look at these trees. So they said, we don't want to cut them down until you make sure that they're the right ones, right? You know, these huge, like, 400-year-old, you know, like, 200-feet trees. You know, we're not going to cut it down and just have it be like, oh, no, that's the wrong size, right? Uh, so they had them. They came up and they went to this part of the forest and they looked at them and they said, "Yeah, these are the, these are perfect. These are perfect trees." But then, you know, Nainoa Thompson, who was the leader at this time, said, "You know, something felt not right about just taking these trees like that." And he realized that there was something about you know there was something sacred about taking these giant trees. And he felt like, well, we have to do something to renew too. So then they actually started this campaign to replant trees in Hawaii and in other islands. And so they, they planted like thousands of saplings of these koa trees. And then they felt like, okay, now we've started that cycle again of renewal so we could actually take these trees. So then the, uh, the trees were cut down and they were transported and the people of the southeast Alaska said basically, you know, here, this is connected to, to Dana, or the generosity in our tradition here. It's like, you know, these are a gift for you. Like, we don't want them back, and we don't want you to ask how much they cost or how much they're worth. You know, this is a gift for you to, uh, to use, right? And that will make us happy that you're using that uh, well. And then actually then they offered back some things to them uh, as well. But it was like that spirit of generosity of here are these sacred ancient trees, and, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, and that cost this much, so aren't you going to be grateful about it or, you know, anything like that. It's just, yeah, here, this is... We're part of the same people. You know, the ocean is one ocean. The land is one land. Right? So just a beautiful spirit of, of offering in that too. So I bring that in as the, the last piece I'll tell you of this story just because, uh, you know, there's something in our tradition here of the way that the teachings are offered. And I know in this community it's very much done in that spirit of, like, offering the teachings. And it's not said, like, oh, it costs this much or how much is that worth, or, oh, you can't come in if you don't have 20 bucks, or, you know, anything like that, right? And I feel uh, happy to be part of that uh, tradition in offering the teachings. And also, uh, I think there's something for us to learn, because it's not a common aspect of, like, American market capitalism, right? <laughs> to be in that mindset of, like, oh, the reciprocal gift, sort of the reciprocal gift economy, Right? Uh, so it's something to consider too. It's like it, it definitely is like a departure from the usual way of thinking about things. Um, but I appreciate it both in the Polynesian uh, 
Voyager story and how we do it in this tradition. And I'll just say when I went um, yesterday to see the boats and, you know, they took us on rides and they also were like incredibly generous in doing that and answering all our questions and, you know, take us around and show us the boats and they were even like, oh, if you want a snack, have a snack. And, you know, they, they were just like very, very generous in their spirit, which I really uh, appreciated and loved. So, uh, so I hope that I'm able to offer the, the Dharma to you also uh, in that spirit as well. And I appreciate also your reciprocal gifts that you give to me. So gratitude for that too. So to leave you also, I would just uh, encourage you to consider, well, what is, what is the thing that I'm interested in developing in my practice right now? You know, so you talked about your aspiration, but is there a particular thing that's sort of up for me now? Like, oh, I like to pay attention to generosity, or I like to pay attention to bringing more energy in for my practice, or I'd like to uh, understand compassion better. Um, I'd like to be more in touch with my body. You know, I'd like to develop mindfulness of the body more. Uh, I'd like to understand why I lose my temper. You know, anything, whatever it is that is you know really sincere for you about like what's interesting, what's alive for you in your practice. You know. And again, there's nothing that is uh, better or worse, you know, whatever it is that really strikes you about that. So to close, we'll just sit and you can reflect on that and then we can each, each take the intention in our heart for our development in that way. So we reflected on our broad aspiration for what it is that we would like to develop or bring to our life. Now in our particular turn that we're on now. So right now, are we going north or south? Are we turning left or right? So what's the particular dimension of cultivating your mind and heart, developing awareness that's alive for you right now, that's interesting for you right now? Could you do with more cultivation of calmness, focus, equanimity? Could you do with more cultivation of energetic factors, investigation? Even just bringing some juice to the practice itself and continuing with this question about, am I adrift? What am I focusing on? Is it about the qualities of love or compassion or joy? So many could have come up. You just pick one. You can just take that intention in your heart. So may I understand the cultivation of this. May I develop this in my mind and heart. May this become clearer to me. And as we take this aspiration, it's for the benefit of our own heart and mind, but also for the benefit of everyone. So just as all the oceans are connected, all the land is connected, all of us are connected in this way. So we share the blessings from our practice and our aspirations. 
with the intention for the awakening of all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be free from suffering. So thank you for your attention. Hope to see you again sometime. Uh, I think I'm coming back in September. I'm teaching a series on Thursdays um, and Andrea's usual group, uh, which is about Dharma and magic. So you can come back for that if that interests you. (laughs) 